You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. We turn now to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2. We're going to read together verses 1 through 11. We'll be looking today at verses 9 through 11 specifically. 1 through, 1 through 8 gives us much needed context. Ephesians, uh, Ephesians, Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 11. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself, and behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness, and of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under the heaven the few years of their lives. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. And I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and I had homeborn slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor And this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that you would open up our eyes to your word and our hearts to receive it and to obey it. We thank you for what has been recorded here by Solomon. And it is our desire that we might learn from him so as not to make the same foolish mistakes that he made Help us to think clearly about the text of Scripture that is before us. And we pray that you would encourage and edify and equip our hearts together. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. When I was a kid, there was a television program on that I watched from time to time. And probably anybody here who's over 30 years old is going to remember this. It's called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous with Robin Leach. Do you remember that? The annoying British guy who had the annoying British accent. And that show seemed designed and intended to set before us every kind of lifestyle and uh, enjoyment that all of us plebeians can never possibly hope to ever have. And it appealed to, I think, the baser, covetous nature that exists in all of us. And we would watch a television show like that and, and think, man, if I could only have that kind of a yacht or if I could only have that kind of a house and if I only had a pool in the backyard, if I only had more of this or another one of those or, or many more of these, then I would be happy, then I would be satisfied then I would be content. And the people who were featured on that program always seemed to live a lifestyle of leisure and uh, relaxation where money was never an object and they had anything that they ever wanted and it was given to them. And And the program kind of portrayed these people as never having any needs or any pressing concerns at all. This was the lifestyle that was the American dream that all of us should aspire to. And there's something in all of us that believes that if we only had more money, more pleasure, more houses, more land, uh, more women, more opportunities, more success, more fill-in-the-blank, 
that then we would be satisfied and content and happy, and then we would have the lifestyle and the life that we've always dreamed of. Well, Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 puts the lie to all of that notion and kind of reveals to us that such thinking is self-deception at best. It is demonic deception at worst. And Ecclesiastes chapter 2 kind of sounds like an episode of the lifestyles of the rich and famous. In fact, if you read it in an annoying British accent like Robin Leach, you can kind of almost feel like you are reading about the lifestyle that you've always wanted to have. Solomon was a man who had everything anybody could ever possibly desire. And he had it in any measure that he would desire it. He had houses upon houses upon houses. He had women upon women upon women. He had as many of all of those things as his heart could possibly desire. He had the choicest wines. He had success like that would be envied by everybody else in the nation. He had servants upon servants. He had more servants than he could need. And he had the best servants that money could buy. And the parties around the palace were accompanied by male and female singers and any type of entertainment that Solomon wanted. He could provide it in his own bedchamber if he wanted to because he could pay to have that done. And imagine what the, the feasts and the banquets at that palace were like. We get some indication of it in 1 Kings chapter 4 where we read this about Solomon's daily food. And Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed oxen, 100 sheep, besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. That's a lot of food. According to two different sources that I read, that is enough to feed 20 to 30,000 people. Or the three slippy boys. Tim... <laughs> But not both. You're either going to feed the three slippy boys or 30,000 people, but never both. That is a tremendous amount of food. But it was not uncommon for kings to entertain dignitaries from other countries and all of their retinue and all the people and the servants they would bring along as well as all of their officials. And Solomon had a thousand women that he provided food for as well as all of the priests in their various temples to their foreign gods. And he had uh, all of his own attendants at the feast and all of his own servants that he provided for twenty a food supply for twenty to 30,000 people per day. That, that's a party, isn't it? That's almost like what goes on in the White House from time to time. When we, we kind of mock the entertainment and the lavishness of that lifestyle, this was, this was Solomon's daily provision. So th this is a lifestyle that is beyond our imagination. It's something that is beyond our ability to even comprehend. But Scripture says that that's exactly what Solomon enjoyed. Now, we were looked at the different avenues of pleasure that Solomon um, that Solomon launched himself into in an attempt to find meaning and purpose and satisfaction. We looked at his pursuit of pleasure through wine, the best and as much wine as he wanted. We looked at his pursuit of pleasure through his own works. He enlarged his works and built houses and gardens and parks and planted vineyards and all of it for himself. Uh, we looked at his pursuit of pleasure through his wealth. He had as much wealth as he wanted. Uh, silver was not even uh, silver was not even valuable in the days of Solomon because there was so much gold. And we looked at his pursuit of pleasure through his women. And he had a hundred thousand women at his command at any time that he wanted. And all of these things provided as much pleasure as Solomon could possibly enjoy. And he was wringing out of pleasure any profit or meaning or significance from it. He wanted and he pursued all of these things in order to find, is there any advantage for man if he pursues pleasure? Is there any advantage to man under the sun? even if he lives for nothing but pleasure and pleasure alone. So having done that, now we come to verses 9 through 11, which is Solomon's assessment of what he learned and how he learned it. 
And I told you last week that we were going to do two things today, and that is to to look at how what Solomon describes as the results of his pursuit of pleasure, verses 9 to 11. But then we want to do, in the last half of our time here together today, I want to construct for you or, or paint for you a picture of what a Christian view of pleasure and enjoyment looks like. How is it that we as Christians are to view the enjoyments and the pleasures that God gives to us under the sun? What is a Christian view of pleasure, a Christian doctrine of pleasure and enjoyment? So let's look, first of all, verses 9 to 11. This is the results of Solomon's pursuit of pleasure. Beginning in verse 9. Then I came, became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. This is part of the result of what, what he got from pursuing pleasure. He pursued wealth, and he got as much wealth as he wanted. He pursued women. He had more women than anybody else. He pursued his buildings and his uh, activities and his works, and he had more of those than anybody could imagine. He had his name on plenty of, of Solomon's towers and plenty of parks and plenty of golf courses and plenty of resorts and temples. All of these things bore Solomon's name. His, his name was on street corners, libraries named after him. Everything he could want, Solomon had. And he became greater than all who preceded him in Jerusalem. Looking back upon David and anybody else who was before him, any king, any ruler, anybody who had lived in Jerusalem, Solomon was the greatest man. Everybody wanted to be like him. Everybody wanted to be with him. Everybody wanted to be Solomon. He was the envy of the entire nation. He was the greatest that the nation had ever seen. That was the result of him pursuing all of those things. He wanted wealth, he got wealth. He wanted buildings, he got buildings. Anything that he wanted, he got. And Solomon says in verse 9, that while he did this, my wisdom stood by me. My wisdom also stood by me. And when Solomon says that his wisdom stood by me, what does he, what does he mean by that? Does he mean that while he was pursuing all of this lavish lifestyle and indulging in, in all of the desires of his flesh, that that whole time he was exercising godly and divine wisdom like the book of Proverbs describes? It can't mean that because the book of Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, true biblical wisdom, knowing how to live in light of this cursed creation, for the glory of God and the good of your fellow man, that type of wisdom, living in obedience to God and, and, and applying the knowledge that we have and the truth that we know, that begins with the fear of God. There must be a proper reverence and fear and obedience to God before somebody can have that type of wisdom. So did Solomon have that kind of wisdom? Was he living in that way? He wasn't. Because if Solomon even had a modicum of true fear of God, he never would have pursued pleasure through wine. Even to the point, he says, of embracing folly, which we would take to be a certain degree of drunkenness and excess. If Solomon had a fear of God, he never would have pursued building all the things that he did for himself, for his own enjoyment, in sort of a self-centered, self-absorbed, narcissistic, egotistical way. He never would have done that. If Solomon had a healthy fear of God, he never would have pursued wealth the way that he did, thinking that that was an end in itself. If Solomon had a healthy pursuit of God, he never would have accumulated a thousand women to have at his disposal. Instead, he would have enjoyed a life with the wife of his youth and his one covenant with that one woman and delighted in that. He would have delighted in that, but he didn't. Solomon didn't have that fear of God, that healthy fear of God that is the hallmark of biblical wisdom. So when he says, my wisdom stood by me, what is he describing? I think in the context he is describing the same thing that he mentioned twice in verse 3 because verses 9 through 11 is something of a summary of everything that has come in this chapter so far. So in verse 3, Solomon describes him doing this pursuit of pleasure while his mind stood by him, his mind guiding him wisely. And the idea seems to be that in all of this indulgence, he never lost his rational ability to evaluate what it was that he was doing. 
He would do something and then he would evaluate it for profit and advantage. He would pursue one pleasure and then he would sit back and he would think about it, analyzing it with his mind to see if there was really any profit or advantage in that pursuit of pleasure at all. And that, I think, is what Solomon is describing by his wisdom standing by him, his rationality or or, or the, the intellect of his mind examining everything that he did. He never lost his mind in these things and just went crazy with it. Everything. This was a clinical experiment of sorts. Everything was done, then evaluated, records were kept, it was thought through, probably discussed with some people, and he spent time meditating on this. That, I think, is what he means by his wisdom stood by. Not biblical, God-fearing wisdom. That did not stand by Solomon because Solomon was not living according to biblical, God-fearing wisdom. So he says in verse 10, His wisdom stood by me, verse 10, All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. In other words, Anything Solomon wanted, he got. Anything he desired, he took. He purchased. He acquired. He did something to get it. There was nothing, looking back upon it, there was nothing that his heart ever wanted that he did not achieve. There was nothing that his eyes ever saw that he desired that he was unable to have. Because as the king, he could simply take it if he wanted to, or he would just purchase it or rent it because of the the amount of money that he had. And there was nothing in any of the kingdom, nothing he ever saw or desired that he withheld from himself. So if he wanted it, he got it. Now this is important to remember and to and to consider. Solomon concludes in verse 11 by saying, all of this was vanity and striving after wind. Keep in mind that Solomon is not describing his pursuit of pleasure as being a failed pursuit because he didn't get what he wanted. He got what he wanted. And in getting what he wanted, that was chasing after wind. You see, it would be one thing if Solomon said, I pursued pleasure through women, but I could not get any women. Or I pursued pleasure through wine, but nobody would provide me wine. Or I pursued wealth, but it never came to me. It just always uh, always flittered away and was always elusive. Or I pursued pleasure in all these different realms, but I never really got what I wanted. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that he never got what he wanted, and therefore it was chasing after wind. What was chasing after wind is trying to find in pleasure what he was seeking, which was meaning and purpose and significance and something of lasting value. Instead, Solomon says, everything I wanted, I got. And that was chasing after wind. That's what was vanity. He had it. And having achieved it, having acquired it, he could look at it and say, it's empty. So you and I could never say to ourselves or think to ourselves, you know, there was some realm of pleasure that Solomon left untapped and unexplored. And so if I pursue that, I will find something that Solomon never found. Nor can we ever think to ourselves that Solomon may have pursued it, but he didn't find it or he didn't achieve it. And if I only I could achieve what Solomon could never achieve, I would find in pleasure something that Solomon could not find. There was nothing he withheld from himself. He had everything he ever wanted. And looking at it through his wisdom, his mind, his rationality, he understood that it was vanity chasing after wind. So he says in verse 10, the end of verse 10, the second half of the verse. For my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. What did Solomon get in his pursuit? His heart was pleased. That's it. Did you find meaning and purpose? No. Solomon, and by the way, when Solomon says, for my heart was pleased and this was my reward, that's not a statement of victory, of of conquest, of accomplishment, of satisfaction. In fact, it is a statement of dissatisfaction. 
all my labor and all my work and all my effort and all that pleasure and all those things, and I had it all, and guess what? What did I get for it? What was my reward? It was just the pleasure itself. Now, did Solomon receive pleasure in his pursuit of pleasure? Yeah, he did. Every last bit of it. And that's the point. But that was all he got out of it. He pursued pleasure through wine, and he enjoyed the pleasure of wine. But that didn't bring him anything of lasting significance. He pursued pleasure through his building programs. He built all those buildings. And when it was all said and done, what did he have to show for it? Just the pleasure of building itself. He pursued pleasure through women. Yes, but when the women went home and the lights went off, where was Solomon? Right back at square one. The very beginning of it all. Contemplating the monotonous cycles of life. In other words, in receiving all of this reward, nothing that I got out of pleasure did anything to mitigate the vexation of chapter one. A generation still comes and a generation still goes. Man is not satisfied with seeing or with hearing. He's not satisfied with pleasure. Pleasure does nothing to straighten what is crooked. Pleasure does nothing to fill in what is lacking. Pleasure does nothing to take away the pain of knowledge or the grief that comes in wisdom. Pleasure does nothing to mitigate the monotonous cycles of nature. Man still works and accomplishes nothing. Man still does everything and is not remembered. Man still dies. He is buried. And all of that still goes on and on and on on and ad infinitum, ad nauseum, and we get nothing out of it. After all of the pleasure, everything about chapter 1, about nature, and about mankind, and about dissatisfaction, it's all still the same. So, you get to the end of all the buildings, and the buildings have been built, and the parks have been built, and the gardens have been planted. And what do you get? I planted my garden this year. And then I told it all under just this last week. And I got to do the whole thing all over again next year. Nothing lasts. Is there any real significance to it? Most of the food has been eaten. It's gone. And will I even remember what I planted next year? By the time next year rolls around, will I even remember what I planted this year? Probably not. Will I remember where it was planted? Will I even remember how good my garden was? You asked me how good was your garden two years ago. I don't remember. I just know that I get to look forward to doing the whole thing all over again next year. And see, that's the monotony and the vexation of life under the sun. And all of the pleasure in the world does not take that away. Because we still live, and we still die, and we are still buried, and life goes on. Jack Higgins is a, is a novelist. He writes thrillers. I think he, according to what I read, he is the most popular British uh, thriller author, fiction author, that has ever lived. He has 84 different novels in 55 different languages that have sold 150 million copies. That's success by any measure, wouldn't you, wouldn't you think? Uh, my books sold close to that, but not quite that. So that's a, that's a nice measure of success, right? He was asked one time in an interview, an interviewer, what do you wish you had known as a boy? What would you like to have known as a boy? And Jack Higgins responded, I wish I had known that when you get to the top, there is nothing there. Tom Brady, quarterback for the New England Patriots, in November of 2005, he was interviewed on 60 Minutes uh, because in January 2005, uh, Tom Brady had quarterbacked the New England Patriots to their third Super Bowl title. Man, that was hard to say. <sighs> Part of my soul just died, and I have a horrible taste in my mouth after having uttered that sentence. And he was interviewed on 60 Minutes, and this is what Tom Brady said. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean... Maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, 
got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. End quote. And then the interviewer asked him, so what's the answer? And Tom Brady said, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. You and I would be surprised at how many people get to the peak of their career, the zenith of their life, and achieve what they thought would always make them happy and satisfied and content, only to find out that when you get there, there is no there there. That when you get to the top, there is nothing there. You're still as empty and lonely and hollowed out and jaded of a person as you ever were in the pursuit of your ultimate goal. That's what Solomon is saying. This was my reward. The pleasure itself. And after that, there was no advantage. There was no profit to anything that he experienced or that he knew. Look down at verse 11. This is Solomon's final statement. Thus I considered all my activities. The word considered there means to, to look at something face to face. It's actually in uh, the book of Job. That same word is used to Job 6 verse 28 where it says, Now please look at me and see if I lie to your face. It's the idea of staring something in the eyes, face to face, eye to eye. I'm making eye contact with something. That's what Solomon is saying. I considered all my works, all my labor which for which I had labored under the sun. I looked at eye to eye and gave it a face-to-face examination. And here is his conclusion. Verse 11, It is all, behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. What was it that Solomon examined? His labor. Now there's some question as to what Solomon means by labor. Is Solomon describing all the works that he enlarged up in the previous passage that we looked at last week? All the building programs, the parks, the gardens, the houses, the temples, etc. that he built and all the work in doing that. Is that what Solomon means by labor? Or by labor, is Solomon describing his pursuit of pleasure? In other words, that the pursuing of pleasure itself was vexating and vexing and laborious. That it was hard work. You understand that being a pleasure seeker is hard work. Have you ever gone on a vacation that was exhausting? And you got back from your vacation, you said, I need a vacation to recover from my vacation. Because you're going from one high to another, one experience to another, one place to another, one site to another, and you're busy, 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 seeking pleasure and pursuing new things. And all of that can be right, but then you get to the end of it and you're exhausted. Imagine spending your life pursuing pleasure in all of these venues and trying to tax out and max out pleasure in every capacity for years doing this. All as part of an experiment. That's very laborious. So when, Paul, when, when Solomon says that I, I considered all that the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, I think he's probably describing everything. And, and there's a negative connotation to the word labor and toil here. The word actually has a negative connotation, which kind of has the idea of, of something that's just draining and sapping on your strength, uh, not in any kind of a good way, but just a very vexing way. And he considered all of that, and here's his conclusion. It's vanity, striving after wind, and of no profit under the sun. Now, one thing I like about verse 11 is how Solomon heaps all of this into one verse. Notice he doesn't say it was vanity. He doesn't just say it was striving after wind. He doesn't just say it wasn't profitable. He doesn't just say this is life under the sun. This is his way. Each one of those phrases has, it kind of carries a negative connotation and, and sort of has a, a disparaging, a disparaging sense to it. And he heaps them all into one verse. It's vanity and striving after wind and of no profit under the sun. That is Solomon's way of saying it's meaningless, it's meaningless meaninglessness, and it's meaningless, and in case you didn't catch it, it is completely meaningless. All of these favorite phrases for emptiness, he heaps into this one verse. So that you and I ought to know that if you are going to live and pursue pleasure as an idol, it is going to be completely empty, completely vain, completely futile. Now, does that mean as Christians that we should then eschew um, uh, pleasure and enjoyment and just say, 
then we ought to have no pleasure or enjoyment in this life. There are some people who think that the more miserable you are, the more spiritual you are. I'm not going to enjoy a piece of cheesecake because that might delight me and be pleasurable, and so I'm just going to forego that. I'm going to abstain from any kind of cheesecake. Or this might be fun to enjoy, and certainly God would not give me something fun to do or fun to enjoy, and so I'm I'm not going to do that. I'm going to go do something that would make me miserable. Um, I would enjoy working with kids in Sunday school, but certainly God can't give me a ministry that I would enjoy, so I'm going to go down and uh, clean the toilets at the mission instead because that would make me miserable. And certainly if it's... If it's um, I want to be spiritual. I need to be miserable in whatever I'm doing for the Lord. Is that is that the Christian view of enjoyment or pleasure? How is it that we as Christians should view pleasure and enjoyment? So let's turn our attention to that then. And let me construct for you a theology of pleasure and enjoyment. Let's begin at the beginning with creation. The Bible says that God is the creator of all things. He made the world and everything that is in it. Now, obviously not in its current state, which is racked and marred by sin, and destroyed where the, the, the curse has brought vanity into this creation. But he, he, uh, he made a perfect paradise. And it was Jesus Christ who is the active agent in creation. John 1 and Colossians 1 say that the Son created all things and that all things were made through him, including angels, principalities, and powers, all things. And without him, nothing was made that was made. So he's the creator of all things. What did he originally make? He originally made a perfect paradise and put two people in that paradise in a perfect, uh, unfallen state. God made everything in that paradise. He gave Adam and Eve eyes so that they could look at the beautiful flowers that he created, the beautiful trees, the magnificent animals, and that they could behold that and delight in his creation. He gave them ears so that they could hear great sounds and hear the animals and delight in the sounds of paradise. He gave them five senses and all the nerves in their body so that they could enjoy the creation that God gave to them. Have you ever sat and thought about how much of a delight and enjoyment exists just in enjoying one simple meal? Even if you're alone, just the enjoyment that one meal brings. And you understand we give thanks to God for that meal, not just because he has provided it, but that he has provided it as a source of enjoyment and pleasure for us. And enjoying that meal, and I'm not talking about being a glutton or going overboard, but enjoying the provision of God is itself a sacrifice and an offering to God in thanksgiving to what he has provided. God created taste buds for our mouths and great food to enjoy with them. Just as one example. He could have created us without taste buds, right? I thought about this one time when I sat down to a meal. And my wife is a great cook. And I get to enjoy great meals that she makes. I was sitting down looking at a table full of food that she had worked hard on. And I thought to myself, how gracious is it of God that I get to sit here and look at all of this food, and that he created taste buds for me to enjoy this. Because he could have created us without taste buds, and we would have all gotten along just fine. Right? We didn't have to taste food. Or he could have created us with taste buds, and then created creation so that every food tasted the same, and that all of it tasted like liver. I know there are some of you that like liver, so if that's you, number one, you should be medicated heavily. Number two... You shouldn't be allowed out by yourself. And number three, just forget what I'm saying now because this applies to normal people. So he could have created all food to taste like liver and given us taste buds to, to taste that. But he didn't. He created this magnificent spectrum of flavor that we enjoy and taste buds so that every single meal that we sit down to is a reminder of God's goodness and that he delights in giving us those pleasures to enjoy. That's what 1 Timothy chapter 6 says, the passage that we read at the beginning of our service. 1 Timothy 6.17 says, Instruct those who are rich in the present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, 
but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Not only has God created us able to enjoy pleasure, but listen, he delights in giving us pleasures and things to enjoy. And Paul says we ought not to fix our hearts on the riches, because when we do that, we make the same mistake that Solomon made, which is putting the gift above the giver and ignoring the giver while we focus on the gift. And that's nothing more than idolatry. And so God has the one who has richly given us all things to enjoy. Everything is at our fingertips. And we ought to we ought to recognize that if God has given to us a gift to enjoy and a blessing to enjoy, and we refuse to enjoy it because we think we're smarter than God, or because we think that we are more, going to be more spiritual than to enjoy good things, if that is our focus, then we are actually then we're actually uh, sort of turning our nose at not only the gift but the giver of the gift. If God has given to us a blessing to enjoy, we ought to delight in it and to enjoy it for His glory, because He is the one who has richly given us all things to enjoy. Because God is the giver of every good gift. And so he delights in giving us pleasures, not only in this life, but listen, also in the life to come. Listen to what David said in Psalm 1611. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Love that verse. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. Do we enjoy joy in this world? Do we experience joy in this world? Yes, we do, but nothing near the fullness of joy. Because every joy that we experience in this world is tainted by the experience of sin that exists alongside of that joy. And so we are unable to even enjoy joy as fullness, as in the fullest sense that God is going to give us joy in eternity. And at God's right hand and in his presence is the fullness of joy. So every joy in this world points me to and reminds me that in the future, I get to experience this in the fullest measure possible. And, David says, in your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Do you realize that it is God's intention when we get to heaven, heaven is going to be itself pleasurable, when we get to heaven, we get to enjoy in his presence fullness of joy. And in his right hand, which is the hand of his grace and his power, David says that's the imagery of the right hand, there are pleasures forever. It is God's intention to pour out upon us one enjoyment after another, one pleasure after another, one rich blessing to be enjoyed after another, one delight after another for eternity. And this he will do because he is a good God. Heaven itself is not sitting around on a cloud and strumming a harp and and humming. It's not just merely sitting around wondering what we are going to do. God has planned and purposed for his people pleasures to be enjoyed everlastingly. That is the promise of heaven. And this is what David was looking forward to. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And here's the benefit and the blessing of of heaven and the enjoyment of heaven. When I get to heaven and God gives me a blessing to enjoy, I will be able to enjoy it in the way he intended me to enjoy it, to the fullest measure that he intends for me to enjoy it, without any taint of sin or selfishness or self-focus. There will never be the chance that my desire for that pleasure, my enjoyment of that pleasure would become an idol. That will never be a possibility. I will instead be able to enjoy every enjoyment and delight that God gives me to the fullest measure possible in the way that is most for his glory and most to my benefit, without any taint of sin or corruption, without any distraction of mind or thought or heart. That's unimaginable, isn't it? Even my, even every enjoyment that we get here is in some way tainted by selfishness because we want that pleasure. In heaven, we get to we get to desire that pleasure with a holy desire and to enjoy the pleasures and enjoyments that God has planned for us, to do this for all of eternity without any taint of sin. 
That, that will be marvelous. This is what scripture teaches. God has created us for enjoyment. He delights in our enjoyment and he has planned for us an eternity of enjoyment and pleasure. And so it is wrong then for the Christians to reject any kind of pleasure or enjoyment um, and to simply pursue or or to even pursue those things as an idol in themselves. So we want to have a measured and balanced view of that, recognizing that God has given to us and we ought to enjoy it. God does not want to rob us of pleasure. He does not want to withhold pleasure from us. He wants us to enjoy pleasure and the enjoyments that he has planned for us in the context in which it is appropriate and right and in which we can do it for his glory. This is why the Westminster Catechism answers the question, what is the chief end of man? Do you remember what it is? To glorify God and what? Enjoy him forever. God is the one ultimately who has given us these enjoyments and he wants those enjoyments to be enjoyed to his, for his glory and in his way. And ultimately every enjoyment and pleasure is to direct my heart to him so that it is he that it is him that I am enjoying in every moment that I am enjoying any pleasure and not just doing it for my selfishness. And this is, this is what, where Solomon got it entirely wrong. For Solomon, pleasure was something that was selfish. He built houses and gardens and parks for himself. The wine was for himself. The women for himself. Everything was about Solomon. It was very narcissistic and self-absorbed and self-centered enjoyment of pleasure, which made, which leads to the second thing that Solomon got wrong, and that is that he pursued pleasure as an idol. For Solomon, this became an idol. It became something that he pursued as an end in itself without any regard to God. So when we enjoy pleasure, it ought to direct our hearts to God. And the person who enjoys the delight or the pleasure that God has given to us as a gift from God and not an end in itself, but as a gift from God, enjoys greater pleasure. Why? Because in the enjoyment of the gift, the right enjoyment of the gift, we are also enjoying the giver of the gift. So that we are actually delighting and pleased on two levels. We are pleased in the gift itself, but at the same time, we are rejoicing in the God who has given the gift and thanking Him and praising Him and doing it in a way that honors Him. So we get double enjoyment. We enjoy the gift and the giver. Solomon pursued the gift without regard to the giver, and that left him a hollowed-out individual with a carved-out soul, jaded and cynical, and bitter to the very end. Why? Because pleasure for him was an idol. So what is a Christian theology of pleasure? God has created us to enjoy pleasure. God delights in giving us pleasure and things to enjoy. We ought to enjoy them for his glory in the right way without doing so selfishly and doing so for the eternal glory of God and the good of his people. That is a Christian view of pleasure and enjoyment. And we can't enjoy these things. So now for the soul-searching question of the day, is pleasure for you an idol? Here's how you can tell if pleasure is an idol. In fact, here's how you can tell if anything is an idol. There are three questions that you need to ask yourself. Something is an idol if you are willing to sin if you don't get it. If it's denied you, you sin. Something is an idol if you are willing to sin in order to get it. And something is an idol if you are willing to sin in order to keep it. Those are the three tests. And if you can answer yes to any one of those, then it is an idol. Are you willing to sin if you don't get it? Sin in order to get it? Or sin in order to keep it? That's how pleasure becomes an idol. Let us not make pleasure an idol, but to, in a God-glorifying and Christian way, enjoy the things that God has given to us to the good and glory of His name. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You for Your mercy and Your grace and the goodness that You shower upon us each and every day. You have given to us so many things to enjoy, and it delights Your heart to do that. We thank You that we are the 
the beneficiaries of your grace and your kindness. Salvation and joy that you give to us in salvation uh, is only a, a sliver of the of the joy that we will experience in your right in your right hand and in your presence. And we thank you that you have provided for us a world that delights our senses and that you have created these things for our enjoyment. We thank you for your goodness to us. You could, you, We don't deserve any of the good things that you have given to us. None of them. In fact, we deserve the opposite. We deserve the wrath that would come upon us for our sin and our rebellion and our disobedience. We deserve far more of a curse than is even upon this world now. But we thank you that you have delivered us from it by your grace and that you have lavished upon us the grace not only of salvation, but also of all of your provision in this world. Thank you for these delights and joys and help us to think Christianly and to use the things that you have given to us for your glory and for the good of your people. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.